What's up, everybody? This is Brian here to tell you about our podcast, Bingetown TV. Our hosts include seven best friends with a love for all things television. We cover a range of genres with a focus on fantasy and sci-fi, but also dip our feet into drama, horror, comedy, and pretty much anything we think is good television. We use the traditional deep dive formula for new live shows that are released week to week, but our calling card is our Rooks and Vets and Pitchtown TV series. Rooks and Vets pairs two of our hosts that have seen a show with two of our hosts that have not seen a show. Pitchtown TV is when we have a special guest pitch us a show by having us watch the pilot and trying to convince us to watch the rest. If you're craving more content on some of your favorite TV shows, then you should listen to Bingetown TV. Find us on our website at bingetowntv.com, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you may find your podcast. At maximum mediocrity, people say things like, I don't dress like this on a regular basis. This isn't my, you know, pooping uniform. This is not <laughs> <laughs> And they also say things like, the, the nurses are usually either angels of mercy or whores. Every episode is a new experience where you get to know people that aren't famous, but should be. Why am I facing Floyd Mayweather in the Woods. My co-host Morgan and I track down the people you didn't know you needed to hear from. It's like hot sex in a mug. We are the Maximum Mediocrity Podcast, and we are on all major podcasting platforms. We'll be waiting for you. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. We're here to entertain you. We'll sing your songs for good times, the best times. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Before My Time. I'm your host, Gelsey Laurie, where we dive into subjects that happened, well, <laughs> before my time. Today we are joined by none other than the Geekscape podfather, Jonathan London, to talk about film noir classic, Double Indemnity. Let's do it. The chilling masterpiece from the pen of James M. Cain, Double Indemnity. All right, Jonathan, I'm super excited you're here. Thank you for being on the show. And I'm super excited that you wanted to do Double Indemnity. Oh, uh, when I heard y'all talk about Something Like It Hot, and you were like, where should we go next? I was screaming, you either got to go to Sunset Boulevard or you got to go to Double Indemnity. And I lean Double Indemnity because I think it's the pinnacle of film noir american film noir movies mm-hmm. and it, it sounds redundant to say american film noir movies although there are elements of noir in non-american films and obviously america being the melting pot that it still very much was at the time that this movie got made and that era of film came about a lot of those influences have been talked about and they all led to film noir this one i still think is the best 
Some mm-hmm. people might say out of the past or Maltese Falcon, I know gets no Maltese Falcon just has the she walked into my office and the right. dame was, you know, and, and that's great. It's fantastic. But this is the one that to me really epitomized that it's 1944. Obviously, the, the movie's origin started in the 30s. But by the time it hit the screen, the U.S. coming out of World War Two and Movies like the best years of our lives, American audiences start to see on screen characters depicted that are not the gleaming ideal that America is. Like we were no longer the shining city on the hill. That's an interesting movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, because one of the main characters, you see him before he goes off to war and they're all small town America. They come back from war and he's missing his arms. Mm. With film noir, and especially with this film, a lot of stuff that started to come out in these stories is this drive towards the American dream, but also this perversion of the American dream. Mm -hmm. And ultimately in pursuit of that perverted version of the American dream and the need to get ahead and the need to, from the beginning, he says, I went after the money and I went after the, the, the woman. I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. You can feel the American dream slipping away Mm -hmm. and the people who cheat in the pursuit of the American dream get taken down. Yeah, they always lose. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what, what's cool about this genre and why I think that that acute period of film says a lot about a transitionary America. Mm-hmm. And it's also why it's, I think it's beloved by film historians. I think it was beloved by audiences. There's a, just a lot to say about it. And Double Indemnity, I think, is the best example of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I, I completely agree. It has every single thing like a perfect film noir should have. And it's interesting, even you were saying kind of back to the bad guy. I mean, obviously we're watching it from a criminal standpoint in his confession tape, which a lot of them have that kind of style, but we just did a episode on pre-code Hollywood, which goes up until 1934. And you can't glorify anyone that commits a crime. They have to lose. That's part of the code system. And so it kind of goes hand in hand, but even still, it's kind of this like weird slippery slope of we, I don't want to say glorifying these criminals because it's not, they all lose, they die, they they confess, they whatever it be. But it is this kind of weird, I feel like it's the first time in a while that film started going that darker route. And like you said, the perversion towards the American dream, because right when the Hays Codes did hit, then everything kind of came a little more like, like, it's all good. And, you know, like we have that like late thirties Hollywood, that's, you know, a lot more Fred and gingery and um, which I love, but I think this is kind of, yeah, getting back into that darker, like, oh, shit, and and coming out of a war, like you said, I I think a lot of realities hit our world. And not just going coming out of a war, going into decades of war. Yeah. You got Korea right after this, and then you've got Vietnam, and then it just never ended. And if anything, the wars just got more secretive. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I like literally, I'm like, what's going on right now? Like, there's probably They just kept happening. I mean, I don't think it was until... Iraq or the invasion of Afghanistan that the U.S. started being like, hey, we're going to war. How cool is this? But obviously they had things like Bay of Pigs and Mm -hmm. secretive operations that puritanical America that was still trying to show the world that they were the leader. There's no way they were going to convey that. And there's a lot of secrecy. And the thing with film noir that a lot of people say, oh, it came out of German expressionism with the Engels and the Venetian blinds and the lighting and a lot of that stuff. You know, yes, a lot of the people involved in film at that time were leaving Europe because of the rise of Nazi Germany. And a lot of those filmmakers were coming to Hollywood and making jobs and making films. I still think that it's very much an American format. And Mm -hmm. 
the things that were going on in the world at the time, like film noir wasn't happening in Italy. You had Italian neorealism, which is my favorite genre of film. That's my favorite era. And they're showing people get shot on screen. You couldn't do that with puritanical Hayes no. Code Hollywood. You could in in the murder in this film. I love that it's off screen. I think it's, it's so horrifying. Oh, that shot when they just show her driving and it's just a close up of her face and you know he's being murdered. And first of all, I have to say Barbara Stanwyck is one of my all time favorite actresses. I she can do me no wrong in my life. Like I, there's just something so powerful and sexy and vulnerable about her. But I could go on on a ramp. But- and you should. She was the highest paid actress at the yeah, time. And Billy Wilder had a lot of problems making this movie and casting this movie. This is his third film. It's not like Billy Wilder was Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And he was not on the same track that Hitchcock was on. They were peers. They were contemporaries that like had each other's backs. They uh, they were in a friendly competition with each other. They borrowed each other's style. I love the scene right after the they lay the body on the track where they try and get away with it. And they start the car. And the car doesn't start. Mm-hmm. And you gasp. Which is crazy because they just committed a murder. And they have to get away with it. They have to start the car. The car doesn't start. And for a moment, you're sitting there as they try and start the car. And you want the car to start. That's, you yeah, you're, you have become complicit yeah. with the murder. Yeah, Hitchcock does that in Psycho. Mm-hmm. 20 years later, 15 years later, when... They push the when he pushes the, the the car into the swamp and it stalls and it doesn't sink and the audience goes ooh it's a nice trick it's a really smart mm-hmm. psychological trick and I love the way they seduce you into being there. That's a great word to use a seduce. Yeah, it it is a mark of a good filmmaker to be able to take you on that journey and actually you don't even realize you're in their footsteps until those moments when you're like oh my god and you get the anxiety that they're having and you're like oh shit like <laughs> I want them to get away or and that's it's you don't even realize you got put into that position. And that's great. Hitchcock wrote to Wilder um, saying since double indemnity, the two most important words in motion pictures are Billy and Wilder. Yeah. And that was like a giant F you to what was going on at the time. You had the rival studio boss, David Oselznik. He put out a movie called Since You Went Away. Mm-hmm. And part of his marketing campaign for this giant studio picture, Since You Went Away, was these are the four most important words in movies since Gone with the Wind. Because uh, he had produced Scott with the Wind as well. And so he's just tooting his own horn. And Billy Wilder was like, this ad sucks. So he came out <laughs> with, with an ad. He, he paid for it himself. He put ads in the papers and said, double indemnity are the two most important words in movies since Broken Blossoms, which was the D.W. Griffith film. And Selzik was pissed. So <laughs> Selzik was like, oh, they're, they're mocking me with these ads that they've bought themselves and Alfred Hitchcock went to bat for Billy Wilder and said, and and said what you did. He, he took his own ad out. These are like rappers going at each other. I know this is like old school battles before Twitter. Yeah. And he said the two most important words in movies today are Billy Wilder. And I'm sure that didn't make any fan of David Oselznik. That's kind of what was happening at the time was you, you had the studio system in high gear And so Billy Wilder is trying to make his third film and he's having trouble getting a co-writer. Like he's had, like people are turning this down. There's this James Kane story. It's really like a story that was released in several parts. It's based on a true 1920s murder trial where a woman gets somebody to help her kill her husband. 
he was witness to it because he was a reporter. He came out of journalism and he's like, man, this would be great. This would be a great idea for a, a story. And he writes, the postman always rings twice. And like that's the one that like people were really into. And he followed it up with Double Indemnity. Neither of these stories were stories that in the Hayes Code you could have made into a movie. Double Indemnity, the, the story originally ends in a double suicide on a boat. Okay, like that's pretty gruesome. The original Double Indemnity cut ends with Neff at the gas chamber that was shot. It was a major downer. Audiences didn't like it. The director didn't like it. I don't think the studio liked it. But it was a little closer to the on-screen or in-story death that you see in the original story. Here, they had to kind of like change some things to make it work. The thing that's amazing is that they get Raymond Chandler to co-write the script. It's his first writing gig in Hollywood. Raymond Chandler is, you know, a, a crime novelist. And they're like, who do we get to co-write this screenplay? And so Billy Wilder, who always co-wrote his scripts because two brains were better than one, he's like, okay, I'm going to work with Raymond Chandler. And he tells Raymond Chandler, like, hey, let's co-write this script together. And Raymond Chandler has no idea how hard it is to write a script. And he's like, great, I'll get you a version on Friday. It's the biggest piece of garbage script. And then they, yeah, I mean, they they spend weeks rewriting it. And the thing is, like, I think Chandler, who then ended up like writing for Hollywood, when he came in, he's like, man, as long as I get two fifty a week. I'm aces. He was getting paid seven fifty a week. Like he he was super surprised that Hollywood was like the cush place to write. Welcome to Hollywood, kid. His relationship with Billy Wilder was terrible. Mm. Like Billy Wilder's writing this script. He's got Raymond Chandler there, who does not think Kane is that great. He thinks Kane's kind of like a you know the kind of writer that you would use his pages to like line a birdcage. <laughs> and now he's rewriting this thing. And Billy Wilder would like always wear a hat. And he's like, I thought it was rude that he would not take his hat off in the office because I always kept thinking that he was going to leave. Or, or Billy Wilder would be on the phone with women and Raymond Chandler would think that that was like putting in his face that he couldn't get a girl. That, okay. <laughs> that like there's this womanizing Billy Wilder on the phone with babes all day and dames all day. The other thing that Billy Wilder would do is drink and Raymond Chandler was sober. Okay. He was on the wagon and they would just fight. Like yeah, they constantly. couldn't be like any more of an opposite team. The complete opposite team, but this script could not be better. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I wonder, I bet that came through a lot with that tension and that like animosity. I mean, it. I feel like that only helps the end product. And a lot of it was Chandler's dialogue. Mm -hmm. The lines in this movie. Oh, like, they are killer. It meant he was on. a dead pigeon. I mean, who says that? You're going to get away with it, baby, and I'm going to help you. Yeah, right oh, down the, the line. Babies. Right the down just, the line. I know the minute he brings in, which is a little more that old school gives you that like, okay, this is early forties. But I, I love that. I miss that in films, which I know I feel like we can't do today because it's womanizing. Go ahead and do it. I love it. I love all the like, hey baby, like kind of aggressive sexual tension. It's amazing. It's brilliant. Because the Hayes Code didn't allow you to put it in the movie, and they know that. And mm -hmm. what's funny is when they're in the marketplace, I was just gonna say, I think it's like the planning sexiest, this murder, sexiest shots is in the marketplace. In there, in oh. this is this is the example of domestication. Mm -hmm. This is not meeting in an alleyway. This isn't meeting in some warehouse or by the docks. This is the centerpiece for domestication in 1940s America is the market. And they are talking about a murder in the aisle that is selling baby food. They're completely aware of what they're doing in this movie. Every piece of this movie is very carefully planned, except one. 
And that is the fact that their lead actor is married. They didn't remove the His wedding, wedding band. ring. His oh, wedding shit. ring can be seen on the couch. Scene. I didn't realize that. <laughs> His wedding ring is in a few crazy Oops. scenes of this movie. And audiences noticed it, but of nobody course. else. But Fred McMurray was married. And I love the casting of Fred McMurray because it's like the dude that ended up being in like My Three Sons. Like he's a charming. So perfect for this role because he is charming. Like, I mean, the minute he walked, I watched it again this week and I was just like, oh, I'm swooning, which is you kind of need that guy for this role to have that aggressive. Like y- it helps you fall in love with him. And it puts you, without you realizing it, back into the, like you said, seduced into their footsteps where you're like, God, I'm I'm, I'm with this guy. Yeah, he is He is not the hard-boiled detective that you think mm-hmm. of with Noir. He is the person that comes back from a war and gets a job as an insurance salesman. Mm-hmm. And Fred McMurray, would, Fred McMurray was like a Tom Hanks. Like, mm-hmm. You're not going to have Tom Hanks plot a murder or th- think about doing something like this. And so... Fred McMurray got the role because other actors passed. One of the famous stories is that one of these earlier actors was like, hey, you know, I'd love to do this role. This sounds great. Where is the scene where he flashes the badge and we find out he's an FBI undercover agent? And Billy Wilder's like, no, no, there is no scene like that in this script. He's not a hero. He goes down with the ship. And that turned off a lot of the actors. Everyone wants to be the hero. Yeah. And it turned off Barbara Stanwyck. It turned off Billy Wilder's co-writer on his earlier films. People did not want to make this movie for years. And Edward G. Robinson, who should have won all sorts of awards for this, Mm -hmm. didn't want to play Keys because it's a secondary character. Oh, it's such a good character, though. Yeah, he got paid the same as Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray because he was a star. He was in, like, Little Caesar and these... Mm -hmm. Movies in the 30s that were gangster films. And so as sound came about and you started having these these actors give monologues and he gives two amazing monologues in this movie. He was like, I'm not taking second, third billing. Like, why would I take this job? And it really did set him on a path for the rest of his career. Barton Keyes is probably my favorite part of this movie. I do love Barbara Stanley. I love this movie. but I know, it's so good. The Barton Keyes character... To me, and this movie is about an insurance salesman who goes to this femme fatale's black widow's house and she ropes him in to an insurance scam to take out a life insurance policy, an accident insurance policy on her husband, then the plot to fake an accident and kill him to collect on the insurance. And she's a black widow the entire time and he gets roped in and she entices him with like an anklet. You know, you see her come to... The, the top of the stairs in the house when he first shows up and she's been sunbathing and she's wearing a towel. I love that. The first time you see her, she's just naked, basically. I'm like, this is yeah. amazing that it's just that raw, like, oh, who's at the door? The, and towel, she- the, the towel almost has to be up around her neck because the haze code. Yeah. But what they didn't do was they put an ankle. I mean, what they, what they didn't really care about the haze code was the anklet on her ankle. Mm-hmm. And the anklet on the ankle supposedly was like the sign that you're married but you're willing to play a little. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, supposedly the 1940s, 1930s. If you're a married woman and you want to still play the field, you wear, wear an anklet. Oh. And I She's love those shots. <laughs> you wear your anklet. As, as she, well, if you're married, like if you don't, I'm, just I'm like. Not, but I didn't yeah, know that. Just yeah, play the field. I do sport an anklet sometimes. Yeah. So as she's making her way down the steps, he mentions the anklet like seven times in a four minute Yeah, period. yeah. And that is something that audiences at the time would have picked up on. Like, okay, this woman is enticing him. She's still playing like, hey, slow down. 
how fast was I going in a 45, 45. about 90. 90. I love, I love that conversation it's fantastic. too. It's fantastic like, dialogue. Yeah. That that's one of my favorite conversations. And so she, she kind of like puts this shiny thing on a lure. Mm-hmm. She gets her rube. Mm-hmm. He's going to do the insurance scam for her. And he, he plays along. He's going for the money and he's going for the girl. Like he says, now keys is his boss. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he does the insurance scam detection over at the uh, insurance company. And Edward G. Robinson is so good in this. Supposedly, he delivered these monologues without error every single time. There are no cuts in the thing. And they clear a space like a stage for him every time he gives these two monologues, uh, where a character is like on left of frame, but the majority of the frame is just taken up by Edward G. Robinson. And he's always talking about whenever he knows that someone's trying to scam the insurance, this little man inside his heart, it's the moral code of the movie. It's the moral code of, of America. So I, as much as I think this movie is about murder and crime and the film noir and all those aesthetics, it's a very redemptive quality of the movie. This movie is also a warning of straying from the path towards the American dream. If you try and cheat uh, in pursuit of the American dream, it will only be like your trolley to like, what does he say? The trolley to, to death, right? Or a trolley mm-hmm. to hell. Like they talk about being on the same trolley, except I'm getting off. No, you're not. You can't cheat the moral code. So I think it's redemptive in that the movie starts with a confession. Mm-hmm. We know that Neff, our main character, Fred McMurray has been shot. We see the, the gunshot. It grows every time you go back to the the framing device throughout the film or the confession. You hear his voiceover throughout the film. Um, This is a man who's bleeding out. Mm -hmm. And he is relaying his confession into a dictaphone to Keyes, who was almost like a father figure to him at work. Mm -hmm. And the whole movie, you see his relationship with Keyes as he's starting to try to get away with this murder and cheat the insurance scam. And I love that he says, you know what keys I did this right in front of you and that you didn't even detect it because it was so close. It was under your own nose. And the entire time he's talking to keys about the movie keys has a cigar. It's two for a quarter. And Neff always supplies him with the matchstick always lights the matchstick for keys. And the whole time you're watching this, it's just this thing they do together. Mm-hmm. Keys pulls out a cigar. Neff flips a, a match and, and lights it. The end of the movie is so damn good. <laughs> It is so good that you have Neff on the ground. The gunshot wound has finally bled him out enough so he stumbles and he's not going to get away. He's asked Keys to give him enough time to get to Mexico. Well, you would have had that time had you not come and recorded a two-hour and- confession. <laughs> this, I mean, this is someone who I think knows he's caught, wants to be redeemed, wants to confess. Yeah. And he, and he falls to the ground and Keys holds him and he says... It was, you didn't notice because it was too, it was right across the desk from you. And, and Key says it was closer than that. And then flicks a, a match for him and lights his cigar. It is so damn good. Uh, the symmetry know. of that is so good. And Wilder knows all this stuff. Oh, There's yeah. that scene in the insurance office where their boss boss is saying, you know what? This wasn't an accident. I know what happened. And he relays the entire plan, the way it happened, but he thinks it's a suicide. And so he's close the entire Mm -hmm. time. He's like hitting all the points on this accident that caused Mr. Diedrich's death. 
this whole train thing with the crutches, the whole time he's relaying this whole thing, you keep cutting to Fred McMurray and there's a cannon right behind him and, and he's under the gun the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I love that after this murder has happened, you would think that a murder would be like the height of the movie, the end of the movie. It's, it's like, the middle of the movie. Yeah. I would almost say it's like before the middle in a, Everything else is anguish. Everything else is moral squirming where they're like, what did I do? It's mm-hmm. just circling the drain for the, the rest torment. of the film. Yeah. And he's the best voiceover is where he's committed the murder. He's dropped her off at the house. They've gone their separate ways. They're making sure they're going to be really perfect with, with pulling this off. And he says, I, as I started to walk, I couldn't hear my own footsteps. It's as, it's as if I was walking in the footsteps of a dead man. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that is really great writing. And I completely paraphrased it. So you got to have to watch the film to know what I'm talking about. Everyone listeners. needs to watch the film, especially if you haven't seen it. But no, it is. And I think that goes back to your theme of that kind of morality and the you can't cheat the system that the minute they do, it's just like now we have to sit and we're going through, like you said, their anguish, their torment of oh, fuck what I do. And that really hits you as an audience then to have to go through that. And we're all sitting there being made to go through it ourselves to show you like, don't do that. Like, and you get put in the footsteps. That car scene mm-hmm. is brilliant. And oh, it it's... only came about because Billy Wilder's car didn't start one night after, after shooting. He was like, eh, maybe, you know, that this is freaking me out. I, my car wouldn't start. That was stressful. Oh, we should put it in the picture. Like right after they staged the, the murder after, right after they staged the accident and try and get away with it, they should start mm-hmm. the car and it doesn't start, which is, just brilliant because you gasp you go oh no oh wait i'm rooting for them oh no i'm one of them i'm complicit with this murder which i think is a lot more common in today's films obviously like obviously you know we're gonna get a lot more racy crazy shit today's age than we did in 1944 even you know as i i was just talking to someone about the haze code and this that and i was like you couldn't make oceans 11 which is a light fun you know crime film but it's still comedy and it's light but i was like they're putting the criminals on a pedestal but back in this day you you didn't do that and so it's kind of we are getting put in their footsteps and again getting to that point when you're like oh shit i'm rooting for them that didn't happen as much as it as it does today so it's extremely it's almost like when the studio system started to fall apart in the mid 60s you know he had films like cleopatra almost destroying fox uh Mm -hmm. you had just these movies getting bigger and bigger and the Hayes Code went away in 1968, and almost mm-hmm. immediately, you have Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, and Bonnie and Clyde is incredibly violent and Easy Rider and Raging Bull. Suddenly, all these European influences and foreign influences start to make their way into Hollywood because while the Hayes Code was keeping this stuff out of cinemas, indie cinemas were taking over, and people were able to start mm-hmm. seeing the Kurosawa films and the French New Wave films and the Italian real, neorealist films. They were starting to see this stuff in the 50s and 60s while people were staying at home watching television. They were able to go to single screen theaters and be influenced by these films that later became like the new American wave Mm -hmm. of the late 1960s, early 1970s, going in like the Corman era and all that stuff where you had all these amazing filmmakers come out of there. And we love those filmmakers. We love the ones that went towards Jaws and the blockbuster. And we love the ones that, that went towards like the Kubrick style and started making like indie movies or, or, you know, and stuff like that. So the Hayes Code kind of collapsed. And I think the studios kind of collapsed. When that happened, everything kind of opened it up. Billy Wilder was actually one of the reasons that the authority of the code kind of weakened because with Some Like It Hot, they didn't get 1959. They did not get a stamp of 
approval. They they got no ratings and they were like, you can't have this, but they still were able to release the film here and there. And it, it did so well and was received so well that it totally weakened the code's authority. What's up, everybody? This is Brian here to tell you about our podcast, Bingetown TV. Our hosts include seven best friends with a love for all things television. We cover a range of genres with a focus on fantasy and sci-fi, but also dip our feet into drama, horror, comedy, and pretty much anything we think is good television. We use the traditional deep dive formula for new live shows that are released week to week, but our calling card is our Rooks and Vets and Pitchtown TV series. Rooks and Vets pairs two of our hosts that have seen a show with two of our hosts that have not seen a show. Pitchtown TV is when we have a special guest pitch us a show by having us watch the pilot and trying to convince us to watch the rest. If you're craving more content on some of your favorite TV shows, then you should listen to Bingetown TV. Find us on our website at bingetowntv.com, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you may find your podcast. At maximum mediocrity, people say things like, I don't dress like this on the regular basis. This isn't my, you know, pooping uniform. This is not <laughs> And they also say things like, the, the nurses are usually either angels of mercy or whores. Every episode is a new experience where you get to know people that aren't famous, but should be. Why am I facing Floyd Mayweather in the Woods. My co-host Morgan and I track down the people you didn't know you needed to hear from. It's like hot sex in a mug. We are the Maximum Mediocrity Podcast, and we are on all major podcasting platforms. We'll be waiting for you. That stuff never works. You know, it didn't work with rap music in the early 90s. The comics code collapsed as well. You it know, makes people want to buy the CDs more. That kind of stuff was going on while I was in middle school, mm-hmm. and you could just see artists start to lean into that and be mm-hmm. like, hey, man, how do I get that parental advisory sticker on my CD? Totally. <laughs> and I think the noir films are like that as well. I think the noir films were like, hey, if you don't want to watch, you know, and David Lean obviously had some like films that had some darker things in them. He's maybe Spielberg's biggest influence. With the noir films, for them to be released in the US, there did need to be that condoning of what's going on. You did have mm-hmm. to see the entrapment. There are, mm-hmm. The shadow play in this movie is incredible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Venetian blinds, which is like the, the stereotypical you know signature of the noir, but also like look at the angles. Look at the amount of high and low angles or a or little bit of Dutch angles. Look at the stairwells and the way that they're treating the characters. The entrapment you first see Mrs. Diedrichson, Barbara Stanwyck's femme fatale character. You first see her through the bars of the stairwell. Mm-hmm. You then see her do the walk Just downstairs yeah. through the bars of the stairwell. The, the whole movie is a premonition. He tells you the whole film in the first scene. Yeah. I didn't get the money. I didn't get the girl. It's kind of fun to watch and know how it's going to end and then mm-hmm. just see how all the pieces fall into place. How it falls. Yeah, I do. So I do satisfying. Like films that do that. Yeah, it's one that popped in ahead. It's very classic of this. It's something like Moulin Rouge or this, that, where you have the tell back where it's like, I fell in love and she's dead. And you're going, oh, no. But like, you kind of forget that you already know what's going to happen through all these films in this one, too, where you know it's not going to end. He tells you, like you said, but you still almost like you go nah they were just kidding or like you want it to go a different way and so it's still it's amazing how a film can still take you on such that journey of the stress and the shock 
and you know. <laughs> and you're cheering for them to circumvent destiny. Yeah, and it's exactly. Like, yeah, you're not going to circumvent. Nobody's nobody gets away with this. Every time I watch Titanic, I always have this like gleam <laughs> of hope that I'm like, it doesn't go down this time. Jack does not die. Like, and you know, but and I love the argument that there's like room on the door for him, and it's like, nah, they would both let us sink. They both would have sank. You ever tried that trick? Oh, they yeah, would have sank. There's 100%. room on the road. No, they both they would have sank. Been, they would have floated, but there would have been too much water coming on that then they would have Heck froze. Heck yes. Like, he had to go. <laughs> they should have just floated around on Billy Zane's corpse. We should remake Titanic. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the remakes on Double Indemnity were all pretty bad. Yeah, there was a didn't. 1970 TV one that was not great and don't do made for tv movies to start with like (laughs) but because the explosion of tv and that's where the eyeballs Mm -hmm. were that's where they remade it famously billy wilder called barbara stanwyck after they they aired it and were like yep they didn't do it right radio was also big and they're and what's cool is that barbara stanwyck and fred mcmurray in i think 1950 or the early 50s did do a radio version of this and they did do their own voices and that was really cool double indemnity has been tried a couple times i don't think any of them are successful there is a version of double indemnity which isn't called a remake of double indemnity but it's fantastic and that's body heat that's an early 80s movie yeah body heat's like one of the hottest movies you will ever see and what's amazing about body heat is it's lawrence kazan who like he's coming off of like writing Empire Strikes Back, writing on the first Indiana Jones movie. He can do pretty much anything he wants after he's come off of these hits. And he's like, I'm going to direct. And I don't think he's ever admitted this before, but he's like, I'm going to do a version of Double Indemnity. It takes place in Florida. William Hurt is the lead. Kathleen Mm -hmm. Turner is the femme fatale. And Richard Crenna, which funny enough, Richard Crenna, who's in the film, kind of plays the Mr. Diedrich role of the Mm -hmm. husband. Ted Danson's also in this, a very young Ted Danson. Oh, wow. But Richard yeah. Crenna was actually who played Walter Neff in the bad TV movie version oh, interesting. <laughs> of Double Indemnity earlier. Now he's playing the D- Mr. Diedrichson role. And there's a really famous scene where like William Hurt and Kathleen Turner have met. It's kind of the couch scene from Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. But they know this is no good. They can't go along with this. And everything is sweaty in Florida and it's all hot. And he's turning to leave and she's like, okay, you know, I think we avoided a very bad decision and they see each other through the window and he grabs like her patio furniture, like a chair and like smashes it through the door and they just <laughs> grab each other. It's like, it's like, like the, the implied like, sex scene from double indemnity where they go on the couch and it's like an implied sex scene. Yeah. And this one, it's just like, you can just hear the saxophone. It's like, like they're just ready to bang. <laughs> Everybody's like so hot. Like William Hurt's like young. Kathleen Turner Kathleen looks Turner's so a hot. Smoking, She's yeah. so hot. And Kathleen Turner did the voice later on of another great noir movie, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> this is where she first played the femme fatale. And yeah, he throws a piece of her pat. I'd be so pissed if somebody threw patio furniture through my window. Like giant window. And he smashes it with his chair, and then they, they just can't they can't stay away from each other. They it's just tear that, at like, each other. They had it's to show the carnal. Oh my god, body heat's great. She found her niche. Oh she yeah, was like, she's so, and she has this. that deep, sulky voice. Like she's like, she's perfect for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other weird thing about that movie, which makes it very worth watching, is the scene of like entrapment where 
William Hurt's like, oh, no, there's no way to get out of there. He's kind of like stumbling around downtown and everything looks like a police siren or a police light. And he's like, this is so inescapable. And then randomly this clown just appears. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck? What is happening? It's brilliant. And Amazing. Lawrence Kasdan went on to do like, you know, Grand Canyon. Big Chill, Silverado. It's pretty great, but Body Heat. Body Heat is the best version of Double Indemnity that nobody, I think, I, th- I think it's pretty much understood that that is a that it is version a of Double Indemnity. Yeah, kind of a, I'll, I'll definitely, but, I need to put that on. Um, I like to watch these movies and there's a couple things that stuck out that you're just like, whoa, that's a sign of the times. And one of my favorites when he's like, I didn't want to go home. So I went through the drive-thru and got a beer and he's got like, he's sitting, you know, and just sitting in his car drinking a beer. And I was chilling. like, just drinking behind the wheel. That being said, you do see those drive-through liquor places in the South, That's where it's like true. a giant barn in the center of the barn is a place where you can drive your car up and be like, "Fill her up, Tex." <laughs> <laughs> I think Lola is also a really sweet part of this movie, and kind of like the the real victim of the film is Lola, whose Absolutely. mother gets her husband gets her father killed after the mom has already killed her mother. It comes out like this is not the first murder that Mrs. And she knows, even when is she's a part like, of. Yeah. She's like, I know that look Hell in her eyes yes. is the same look after my mother died. And she like, and it's just, she's just living with her knowing how old is supposed to, is Lola supposed to be? She's supposed to be a teenager. I know. And I, cause when she first <laughs> comes on, I'm like, Oh, she's dropped dead gorgeous. But yeah, when she started like, daddy, I'm just going to go with Anne and we're going roller skating, clearly lying. We've all done that. And I was like, I know this shtick. I never but, did um, that. <laughs> that was I so find boring myself in high now, school. I was too. I actually was a, like a goody two shoes. I was really good. But I'm doing that. Um, I've been back home since the pandemic. Now I'm 30 and I find myself lying now more as an adult than like I'll be going out on dates. I just want to keep stuff to myself. So I'm like, I'm seeing some friends. And I'm like, <laughs> hot date. You have to lie now because of COVID. Yeah. That's true. You have to be like, I'm just going to go I'm out going in the out woods. I'm going out for a walk alone. Middle, I'm going to hang out in my car. And then as I walk, there's like a... Yeah. It was like a dark night. Yeah. You're like, no, like, you're going to throw somebody's so- patio furniture <laughs> through their window and bang them out in the living room. We know what you're up to. My dad listens to this podcast all the time. Hi, dad. I'm I, so sorry, I'm not- sir. You have to pay for a plate glass window. You- <laughs> I, I never your, lie to you, dad. Your daughter vandalized the house. In order to make out with a guy or girl six feet apart. I don't know a lot about you, gals. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the cast in this is really good. The character that I really love and kind of gets like the short end of the stick, even though he's not a good person, is Nino Segetti, the boyfriend of yeah, Lola, who's like just a schmuck. dick. Like- <laughs> what a dick. And he was clearly going to try and kill Walter Neff. He yeah. was being brought to that house to yeah. not just take out Walter for Phyllis Dietrichson to then get arrested. He was going to take the fall for the entire murder. He was the idiot. He was the person who was the re- the real person who like when Phyllis Dietrichson kills Walter Neff, which is what's going to happen at the end of the movie. And Walter Neff goes to kill her, which is kind of like the double suicide thing that was originally in the Original, Kane book. Yeah. When Phyllis Dietrichson's plan was to kill Walter Neff, Nina was going to take the fall. And I also think that's one of the reasons that this is also a redemptive story is after Walter kills Mr. Dietrichson, which is a really cool uh, scene because it's almost like an, you know, it's almost like a kiss. And then you hear the bang, bang off camera and she falls and he's shot her. He exits the house and here's Nino coming and says, Hey, get out of here. 
Mm-hmm. You don't want to be anywhere near this because shit is about to go down. The cops are on their way. So he's a redemptive in that way. Like that's the his one redemptive thing. That That's kind of like, all right, get out of here. Guy who was rude to me at every turn. I also like the geography of Los Angeles. I found the house. I found Mrs. Jeterson's <gasps> house. Really? It's by, yeah, it's by the Hollywood Reservoir. Oh, I got to go. I, it's like my dream home. It's I'm, awesome. It's, when he was like, oh, yeah, like 15 years ago when everyone was obsessed with the Spanish style California, like that Spanish style built in the 20s California home is my dream home. You can get to it right off the 101 by Amazing. the Hollywood Bowl. It's real easy. And then Neff's apartment. When I first moved to L.A., I lived on Winona and Neff's mm-hmm. apartment is one street over. Uh, in Hollywood and I used to walk past that building almost every freaking day and I was like that's Walter Neff's freaking apartment that's really cool LA geography is all pretty accurate in the film it would take two miles to walk from Neff's apartment to the Diedrichson house which he does do to so that nobody sees his car leaving the parking garage but the one thing that I thought was weird was when Lola was like I'm gonna meet Nino at the corner of Vermont and Franklin which is now like the northwest corner is across the street from what is now House of Pies. Oh, yeah. No, nah, man, that's a house. You ain't meeting him there. And then in that scene where he drops her off there, it's like downtown L.A. Don't play with me. <laughs> I love the when corner, movies do that. Like <laughs> corner of Franklin and Vermont's never looked like that. Ever. <laughs> You're the person writing the email. Um, excuse me. I would just like to point out a couple of I'm going to put this in my time machine and shoot it back. It'd be like, excuse me, in the year 2022. All the time, though. Like, I'll be watching movies that are set in LA, Hollywood, California, be whatever. And they do, they're like, I'm just going to go for a walk. And they like walk out of the valley and then they're like by the water. And I was like, what? You just turn the corner and you're, what the? Yeah, all the time. And then anyone else watching it that has never been because, and that's why when people come to LA, they're like, what? This isn't what I imagined. And I was like, because the movies are giving you a false. I want to see all these sites that are clearly within a five block radius. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. I love living in this city because I romanticize old mm-hmm. Hollywood so much. Me too. And I got to tell you, gals, I went to interview somebody for the Geekscape documentary we did, Doc of the Dead, and he had been in all these Oliver Stone movies. And when I walk into his house, he has Chaplin's cane, Chaplin's hat, and a bunch of Buster Keaton stuff all over his office and this is an elderly guy and i said wow how'd you get all this stuff and he said i was buster's understudy mm. and this guy was buster keaton's understudy and Holy i listened shit. to your episode with jennifer zang when you all were talking about vaudeville and buster came out of vaudeville there's some really great books that just got oh, re- i love released yeah. about buster and buster's my personal favorite i love charlie chaplin i think buster was a better writer director and mm-hmm. we can do Buster Keaton's film history anytime you want. But the only story I'll share to keep this short is after we wrapped up the interview, we're hanging out in his living room and he has this piece of driftwood, a sign made of a big piece of driftwood on sailing rope is being held on sailing rope. And it's just a sign. And it said, no pets, no kids, no actors. (laughs) And it was super faded. And I said, I said, what is that? And, And he said, okay, when Buster Keaton first, moved you know to hollywood after he'd been as a kid he traveled with his family doing these vaudeville shows but now he's about 18 years old and he's going out to signal hill for a week to do a movie with max senate and at the time he was like segueing from being one of his players i guess this this was in 1918 this had to be 1910 or so because by Mm -hmm. 1918 he's like crashing fucking trains into canyons and shit like he's 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 doing like parodies of 
you know, massive D.W. Griffith films by that time. So it must be 1910, somewhere in there. He's 18 years old and he finds a classified that has a room for rent for the week and he needs it. He's going to be out there at Signal Hill for a week. And he goes to this house and it's got a gate at the street and there's a long staircase up to the door and he buzzes the buzzer and the woman comes to the door at the top and says, can I help you? And he looks up and says, yes, I'd like to rent your room. I'm working here for a week. Can we talk about it? And she says, what kind of business? And he says, I'm filming a movie with Max Sennett. He's very proud of himself. And she said, did you see the sign? And he looks at the sign and it says, no kids, no pets, no actors. He reads it. He looks back up at her and she goes, now you can fuck right off. (laughs) (laughs) So he grabs the sign and runs away with it. That's incredible. (laughs) He's like, great, this is mine. I love that sign. I love that story. And I love Buster Keaton. Have you seen The Strange Love of Martha Ivers? It's Barbara Stanwyck, 1946 noir film. And it actually has um, a very young Kirk Douglas in it. Love this. It's another great noir. But the way that this death ended with when you were like, oh, she gets killed. um, And it's almost like a kiss. It's very much this is how this death in this one, it's a double death kind of situation where you just hear the bang, but they're embracing and you don't even realize that she's kind of going in for the kill. It's a very underrated, like no one's heard of it. I went on a noir slash Barbara Stanwyck kick a couple of years ago where I just like dove into a bunch of films and this one fucking cool. When I, when I think about Kirk Douglas in noir, I, I I think me, like everybody else goes to out of the past with the Mm -hmm. movie with Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer. That's one of the first noirs that I saw. I think it's still one of the best noirs. And then Billy Wilder wasn't done with it. He goes on to do sunset Boulevard, which a lot of people also call one of the best noirs because you have the result right there. The first shot, Mm -hmm. the the lead character floating dead in a pool. (laughs) And then you like, how, how do I, how did this come about? The great Gatsby is kind of a noir. Yeah. the, The, the doomed narrator isn't Gatsby is yeah. the thing is you know and is Gatsby the quote-unquote femme fatale mm. right in that yeah. in that situation is Gatsby the femme fatale this completely emotionally disconnected human being who who pines for one thing to his own destruction it might work but he's if not it was yeah narrator. it's not yeah I was just like as you said that I was like no. oh of course yeah no that isn't because and also another um theme of noir aside from all the everything kind of we talked about is the theme of being trapped and having to get out. That's, you know, it's, they even said, um, I think I said this on the Vietnam podcast that I was listening to an episode of something that was talking about noir through music, like the theme of noir and the animals, we got to get out of this place. They were like, that is a perfect film noir through a song theme wise, which is also kind of an interesting back to the shot of her through the bars where it's incredible. The entrapment, but it also kind of puts in that like, subconscious prison stuck if, feeling if you're not doing that with the foreground you're doing it with the background you're doing it with the mm-hmm. shadows you're doing it with the lighting you're doing it with the angles you're doing it with the stairwells you're doing it with the doorways there's a lot of doorway action going on in double identity mm-hmm. most noir films where a character is framed in a doorway or they're on different depths in the mm-hmm. shot so you have larger characters like neff is prominent in I think both of those Keys monologues where Keys is talking about, you know, this is how I see the insurance in- industry. And then later when Keys is just straight up figuring out the murder, this is how it happened. He thinks it's Nino who did it, who done it or somebody else. He, he doesn't know who else, who the man is, but he knows there's a second party involved. And Neff is just sweating in the foreground. And I love that shot. I love how extreme this 
genre is. And you still see it. They still make noir films. There's still films that play with all this kind of stuff. They're neo-noirs like Blade Runner. By the way, um, listeners can't see right now, but I can. And you have this epic shadowed lighting going on where you've got like yeah. kind of a Venetian blinds. I'm, it's I, themed. I, yeah, I really appreciate it. I was talking to this dame on a podcast, you see? I've entrapped myself. This network is what's entrapped me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. I was just talking to this guy online, Matt Kelly, and he told me I should start a podcast. So I did, but I didn't know how deep in I was going to get. You got to believe me, Jonathan. You got to. Why would I want to grow up if I can just talk about pop culture with my friends forever? It's fun at 25. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're a kid and you're like, when I grow up, I'm going to live on one block with all my friends. Yeah. And Billy's going to live down. And then Susie, who I like, is going to be my wife. And you imagine this weird utopia where everyone you like is living in a two block radius, like the friends you have after school. Oh, yeah. Who you run around the neighborhood with. And you're like, my sister and I were going to have houses with a bridge that connected. Absolutely. Yeah, we we're going to live and on a farm. And then you read Bridge yeah. to Terabithia and you're like, man, those fucking houses would have collapsed. No, uh, <laughs> you end up with this weird like metropolis that you're thinking of you're like oh this neighborhood's gonna have everybody i've ever loved in my life living close to each other that's a lie doesn't exist i've crumbled that so one far. right off the bat geekscape is me creating that neighborhood <laughs> so it can happen but it has to happen metaphorically the goals that i have today yeah in my 40s are still the goals that i had when I was seven years old, I've I just that. found adult ways to achieve them. That's, I, people should do that more. I think people lose that. You gotta, you gotta find that kid. I'm the same way. I'm doing. If my little seven year old self saw me today, she would be so excited, and that makes oh, me happy. They would lose their minds. That's like, can I, can I just end this? Like, I have work to do, and these idiots are sitting here podcasting. Be like, all right, Matt Kelly's the swellest. <laughs> We should do a we theatrical a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like Matt Kelly and friends. And it's basically like Geekscape's Muppet Babies. <laughs> oh my gosh, make this is scenarios amazing. Where it's like, who stole my airplane? <laughs> we have to solve mysteries, right? Like, the dog got out. We got to go catch him. Guys, what are you doing? Nothing. You okay. guys play nice together, you hear? I'll be back in an hour. See, the best idea, the worst idea, definitely the most <laughs> in-joke idea of all time. I Matt, write it down. I'm... Anytime somebody joins the network, we basically gang jump them into it yeah, by they don't forcing them. No, we gang jump them right in. We force them to do the Little Scapists podcast, <laughs> which is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> the little skaters podcast they have to play infantile versions of themselves a little adventures with the rest of us wait before we go i had a really deep raspy voice i sounded like i was a smoker so you did kid. yeah it was really cute and i'd be like guys wait no we should put on like sequins first and dress i i would always we'd always need to dress up what about these feather boas they're gonna look oh, really good yeah i'm gonna wear a cape jonathan we've gone all over the place here um within the realm of of our lovely film noir but let's i i don't even know how to wrap this up so i'm just going to announce to the world we are wrapping this up so do you have any final thoughts on double indemnity i think people should see it this is a required viewing for mm -hmm. american film history i think that several organizations have called this one of the top 25 american films of all time i think it definitely belongs on any top 100 list of american films oh, or just films in general watch this one and then really enjoy it Understand where so a lot of these tropes came from and then go check out Body Heat 
and be like, wow, this is how you modernize a film in an, in an adaptation. They do a great job of pretty much taking double indemnity and making it like a six, like a really cool, sexy eighties window film. breaking movie. I'm excited. It's great. I'm excited to watch it. It's great. It. Awesome. And now that they're uh, remaking everything in Hollywood, they should take notes out of that and be yeah, like, Hey, they, they we don't to have do... to be literal in our remakes. Okay. So obviously this is part of the Geekscape network and podcast, but shamelessly plug all of your endeavors. Where can we find you? Yeah. Smash my back window in with patio furniture anytime you'd like. And if you want to do it online, you can do it at Jonathan London on Twitter at geekscape.net spelled out on Instagram, D-O-T-N-E-T. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm always hanging around on the Geekscape Forever group on Facebook. Uh, search for Jonathan London. You'll find me on any of the socials. And of course, listen to the OG Geekscape podcast that started the downward spiral 15 years ago. That's just Geekscape. That's the podcast where unlike you experts who do your own shows on the network, ranging from music to horror to improv comedy to female filmmaking or looking into the past like yourself the main geekscape podcast i like to describe as a mile wide and an inch deep it's like we cover (laughs) all the topics we only do them to the extent of my own ability so that's great i hope i've stretched a little further here in my expertise yeah no i love this was great what you brought was gold for this podcast me walter neff insurance agent it all began last may I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? All right, Kelsey, that was a supersized episode of Before My Time compared to, you know, some of our episodes are 20, 30 minutes long. We got a little carried away there. (laughs) That's totally fine. I just want to ask you one quick question. We've... Dipped our toe into film noir. I'm sure we're mm-hmm. going to be dipping our toe into this again. Duh. Yeah. This is our second time dipping our toe into Billy Wilder, who is, definitely has a lot of film noir under his belt. Mm-hmm. So here's all I'm going to ask you. What Billy Wilder film you would most like us to discuss next and what film noir film you would like us to most discuss next? I thought you were going to say pick a favorite Billy Wilder. And I was like, Matt, it's Sun Like It Hot. That's my all-time yeah. favorite film, period. I know, um, I know. I would never ask such a stupid question. I, know I feel you like, so I know. Well. I was like, why? I knew that. You know what? I think we could just go double whammy and say Sunset Boulevard and just hit them yeah. both out. Like, let's yeah. just do it. I think we should do Sunset Boulevard and that takes care of both because I would love to dive into another wilder noir and see how it kind of relates, how it's different. And I, that's the other like, you know, one of some people would call it the number one film noir of all times. So there's, you know, debate there or whatever. But yeah, let's do it. I love it. Put it on the list. It's going on the list, on the everybody. List. I've um, got a list. <laughs> and if you all have ideas for items that should go on the list, let us know on the Instagram at before my time underscore podcast or on Facebook, just search, search. Oh my gosh, I can talk before my time will pop up. Say, Hey, say hi, say hello. And tell us what topic you think we should cover next. And we'll be back next week with more.
You're listening to the Geekscape Network. What's up, everybody? This is Brian here to tell you about our podcast, Bingetown TV. Our hosts include seven best friends with a love for all things television. We cover a range of genres with a focus on fantasy and sci-fi, but also dip our feet into drama, horror, comedy, and pretty much anything we think is good television. We use the traditional deep dive formula for new live shows that are released week to week, but our calling card is our Rooks and Vets and Pitchtown TV series. Rooks and Vets pairs two of our hosts that have seen a show with two of our hosts that have not seen a show. Pitchtown TV is when we have a special guest pitch us a show by having us watch the pilot and trying to convince us to watch the rest. If you're craving more content on some of your favorite TV shows, then you should listen to Bingetown TV. Find us on our website at bingetowntv.com, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you may find your podcast. At maximum mediocrity, people say things like, I don't dress like this on the regular basis. This isn't my, you know, pooping uniform. This is not <laughs> <laughs> And they also say things like, the, the nurses are usually either angels of mercy or whores. Every episode is a new experience where you get to know people that aren't famous, but should be. Why am I facing Floyd Mayweather in the Woods. My co-host Morgan and I track down the people you didn't know you needed to hear from. It's like hot sex in a mug. We are the Maximum Mediocrity Podcast, and we are on all major podcasting platforms. We'll be waiting for you. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.